My name is David, and this is The Big Shut-In. It's Tuesday, December 15th, day 275 since my family started social distancing. And today I spoke with a woman named Carlita. And not to put too fine a point on this, but Carlita is one of the people who keep the world turning. I think however fundamentally good and generous we are in our hearts, we're all a little bit self-absorbed. And it's times like these when things really get cockeyed and difficult that you notice that there are people who are really good at dealing with cockeyed and difficult. People who have dealt with hard times maybe forever and are very good at just putting their heads down and doing what needs to be done. Accomplishing the task at hand and making sure that the people around them have what they need. And talking to Carlita, she's just one of those people who understands that Caring for the people around her is also caring for herself. You can't just let hardship happen and let people suffer without the poison of ignoring that suffering seeping into your own body. And so she works and she gives and she does. She works in an assisted living facility in Brooklyn. And it's a place where all kinds of shit hit all kinds of fans earlier this year and things really got difficult but she stuck around and did what she could to make them a little bit better and somehow in the middle of all of that she volunteered for the red cross and flew out to oregon to help wildfire victims and she ransacked her own savings account to help provide for her neighbors and the people around her who, who were suffering worse than she was and also managed to figure out how to take care of her children and her family and it's a heck of a conversation and i just i'm awfully glad that there are carlitas in this world because they are the ones who really make things run in a way that makes it bearable for the rest of us to live our lives and so i'm really glad that i got a chance to spend a minute with her and hear things from her perspective because the other thing about the people who really make the world run is that they are often ignored for that labor in our self-absorption those of us who depend on people like her to make our world exist can too often ignore them and just go about our business without realizing how much we depend on the labor and the kindness and the generosity of others. So let's hear from Carlita. I spoke to her from her home country of St. Vincent in the Caribbean. And I apologize in advance for some sound issues that may have caused. There was an excited rooster in the background making a lot of noise, but gosh, it was a good conversation. And I'm really glad to be able to share it with you. All right. So, uh, so how, how are you? How are you doing? 
Well, I'm doing great. As a matter of fact, since this whole pandemic started, yesterday was one of my happiest moments. Because I was saying, because of Corona, I normally come to St. Vincent, but never like spend time with family because you're too busy visiting everybody. But now that I have to be in quarantine here, three of the kids were here and it's like we start talking about like when we were growing up, what was happening. And it's like, I felt so happy because we never really have this opportunity in the last 20, 25 years to actually sit and talk. So because, I mean, I, I said to them, Corona is good and it's bad because it's actually bring family together because I come to St. Vincent, but I don't ever come and stay in the country for this long, just overnight. But now I'm here for like nine days. I spend five at the hotel and then I have to spend nine at um, my aunt's house before I actually go to Beckwith to visit my dad. How how long will you be down there? Are you Are you there now for... The duration or are you coming back i'll be here until december 30th i'll be back in um because i have to go back to work and um the day before on new year's eve tell me where you work i work at an assistant living in the um, what area they call that um Starrick city yeah how how has that been that must have been tell me about you know from the beginning maybe like how was that back in february january march when this was starting to heat up i'm being honest with you in the early stage when when it started is like everybody take it for granted everybody think it was a joke and at one point there were points when i was so mad about the way they were doing things because they think it was a joke and then we we lost like we had a, a little area in the lobby where we had a good bit of the residents used to sit we lost probably about um six of them from that little group and I actually had to close the lobby and put tape on the door and everything because even though the Department of Health was saying to do this and do that, I think the management wasn't really taking it seriously. So we lost quite a bit of residents um, from that facility. How many people, I'm sorry to be blunt, but how many people died, would you say, from your facility? If you had to guess. I think in the early stage, we lost about 18 in the early stage. But then after that, and the thing is that they were dying so quick behind one and each other. But now it, it you know, a couple of people died after, but not as much as, you know, as before. Because most, some of the residents, they, they're not listening when you tell them they have to stay inside or they can't go outside, you know. You can't stop them because in a, it's an assistant living facility. So they can go on, come as they feel like. Until that point where the governor say you have to lock the doors. The only thing the family cannot come in to visit, but they can go. Well, now it's open. They can go and come as they feel like. But it was very hard. Every day I went home crying because it's every day you send someone to the hospital. Two days later, they call but that person is dead. And it, it was really hard. It was really hard in the beginning because we lost so many people and then so many people got sick and then eventually everybody had to be locked into their rooms and we have to carry breakfast, lunch and dinner to the rooms. And it was a whole big changeover. It's very difficult. So I, I'd love to hear more about sort of the beginning of all this and, you know, and I don't want you to get in trouble. I don't want you to talk out of school. But as much as you can say about it, I'd love to hear, you know, when you realized things were going to be bad and sort of 
how your interactions with management then and what they were doing and not doing. I, I'm curious sort of how that went. When did you realize this wasn't just, you know, going to be the normal flu? We've been having people going to the hospital, coming back to the facility with, you know, and they weren't testing anybody. And then even um, during the time that Corona had its hold on us, they still weren't testing people. You send them to the hospital and they will say that, you know, they, they're not, um, they can't test them or they don't have enough tests. Because I remember myself, my blood sugar level kept spiking and it wouldn't go down. And then eventually I couldn't reach my doctors. I couldn't reach anyone. So I had to call 311. They said that because of my blood sugar level, they have to call 911. And then they came and said that, you know, they have to take me into the emergency because my blood sugar level was too high. And I went there and there weren't any room for anyone. So you just sit and you were outside in the cold for like an hour and a half before you go to the second door. So you were literally just sitting there in the cold because it was cold on that day before they take you into the second part of the hospital. And then when you go in that part, they take your temperature. And what was strange was that all the EMT and we had ambulance coming in like 10 minutes an ambulance coming with somebody. And all these guys and ladies just standing inside there. And I'm like, people really not taking this thing seriously. Because they're in there, they're chatting, they're laughing, nobody with masks on, everybody. Some some couple have masks on. And then when we moved from there, um, they put me in that room and then we went to the other room. When was this? Was this February? This was March? When was this? March. In March. Okay. That was in March. So I was home one morning and then my little girl got up and she said, um, mommy, I'm feeling warm and my throat keep itching. But because she has a heart condition, I call her pediatrician and she said, take her to the hospital to be tested. When we go, lo and behold, she was tested positive for COVID. And then I realized that I also was positive. And as if the hospital didn't care because the nurses and everybody who came in the night, they didn't have the proper equipment and they treated me because I didn't come in on a stretcher. They treated me as though I didn't have COVID. So I think in a whole New York, they, we didn't take it serious because even though we see people dying every day, you go to the emergency room, they don't have any equipment, they don't have this. And then because they hate it was just my blood sugar, nobody ran a, did a, a COVID test to know whether or not I was positive. Even though wow. they know where I was walking from. And that was the that was one of the main hospitals that most of the residents from our facility went to and end up dying because of COVID. Wow. So then um, you know, I stayed home for almost a month. And then it's like every day they keep calling and asking if I could come back and if I so eventually I, I went back. But then when I discovered that my little girl was positive with COVID. I started treating everybody in my house as if they were positive for COVID. Sure. We start doing steaming. We start doing, you know, home treatment and everything like that. And, um, you know, we isolated ourselves. And in the end result, we realized everybody did have COVID because we all had the antibodies, except for one, one my oldest daughter. She did not have any antibodies. How many kids do you have, Carlita? I have three girls. The oldest is um, 25, the middle one, she is 14, and the baby, she is 12. Wow. So they were all, I mean, the two younger ones were home from school through all of this too. So you were juggling that as well. As yeah, be 
being sick and going to work. That must it have been fun. It was difficult in the beginning. <laughs> no, it was difficult because for them to be sitting in front of the computer from 8 in the morning until 2.15 or 2.45, it was too much for them. And then sometimes, especially in the math classes, they, the teachers, like, they just didn't get the whole hang of the, the internet class. And it, it was real difficult for the kids. It was difficult. My oldest daughter is a preschool teacher and she oh, wow. had to be um, teaching from home. So I don't have luxury of a big mansion. So think in terms of three kids home and the internet, and then I'm volunteering for New York Office of Emergency Management, calling the hotels to see who would accept people who, who has to quarantine and who would accept people who have corona. It was difficult. It's, there was times when you just had to go like in the corridor and sit down and try to make my calls because it was too chaotic in the house. But I think it's a little better now that, that everybody get the hang of it. How, how was it? So... After you were sick, you stayed home, you said for about a month, you went back to work. Had things changed? Had people started taking things more seriously or, or was it just as bad as it had been? No, people started taking things more seriously because by then they closed the dining room. So they start solving in the rooms and then the Department of Health start coming in the facility and making sure that we do things by protocol. And then um, we actually put where my desk was, they actually put a, a table in front so that the resident wouldn't come too close to us. And we put down the social distancing thing so that they would be six feet apart. And, you know, it's, it. but still up to today, you still have to keep announcing every day. Resident, we're still in the corona air, um, time and you have to stay in your room. You have to practice social distancing. I imagine it must have been tough on the residents in general to just be totally isolated. It was. It was, it was. I know residents would call, even I was home, they would call and they would cry. And there are some residents sometimes, like in the evening when I finish what I'm doing, I'll have to be calling certain residents and speaking to them and chatting with them, you know, just to keep the faith going because they can't see any family member. And some of them already did not have any family member. So to them, I was their family member. I was the person when I go into work, they would call downstairs, they would come downstairs, they would sit, they would chat. And I'm not being there. It kind of take a toll on them. So some of them, you know, I would call them from time to time and, and just sit on the phone and chat. I remember one lady, her son is in Israel. And he said to me, he said, Kalita, you need to call my mom. You have to do that. Every night you reach home, call my mom and sit on the phone and chat with her because half of them, to be honest with you, some of the residents suffer mental breakdown to the point where two residents had to be discharged from the facility because they're not accustomed being in, in this room all by themselves, locked away, all people just handing food for you. Some of them think they were in prison because they're just handing in the food and handing whatever you want and that's it. So two residents, to be sure, had to be discharged because they suffer mental breakdown and we can't keep people who have mental issues in the facility because it's an assisted living and they still have the freedom. And, you know, it, it was crazy. It was crazy. I mean, I know COVID hit everybody and it take us off guard because a lot of people think it was a two weeks thing and it would have gone away and it, and everything would have been back to normal, but that wasn't the case. 
And when we start losing people and then it not it didn't only affect us in one way, but it affect us to the point where we start getting income because if if somebody die, you can't the family you cannot put somebody in that room, you cannot accept anybody into the facility. So we were practically one floor was practically empty and then the company was losing money. There was a lot going on. It it and trust me, it's it is but a little normal now because now we can accept um new um residents and stuff like that. But for most part, most of the rooms are still empty that people die from because you know we can't keep rushing people back in, but we we coming back slowly but surely. It struck me while you were talking and you're talking about this kind of struggle of you know, because like you said, it's not a prison. You can't force people to stay in their room if they don't. And it strikes me that that's kind of what's happening with the, with the country as a whole. You know, you can beg for people to do the right thing. You can ask them to do the right thing. You can try and show them what the right thing, but you can't, you can't force people to stay home and wear a mask. Right. How did you deal? How do you deal with that? I mean, how did you deal with if a resident, as you said, is a free person, you're, you're not a prison guard. If they if they want to leave their room, you can't really stop them, right? I mean, like, how do you deal with that with people who don't want to take care of themselves? You can't stop them, but the the thing is that in the initial stage when they close down, I'm being honest with you. I my husband used to ask me, "What strength do you have? How do you make it?" Because I was leave in the morning at six o'clock, get to the supermarket. I have this huge list from every resident. I go, I do the shopping. There's some of them I have to go to the bank and withdraw money, deposit money. There's some of them I have to go to the pharmacy to pick up the medication because even we have a pharmacy in our facility, some residents are not using the pharmacy, they're using CVS. And then CVS start having lines and you have to wait on these long lines just to go in to get the medication for them. And then the supermarket start having lines and you have to wait on these long lines. So I normally, I used to leave home at 6 a.m. so I can get to Western Beef because they open up like um, 7, 7 o'clock. Do one shopping there, then go to work, work until 10, leave at 10, go back to the supermarket to, <laughs> with the other resident. It was, it was hard because some residents don't trust other people to do certain things for them. Sometimes it's like all 11 o'clock in the night because when I finish working, I'm going to shop right that in Gateway, and then I have to. And these residents, trust me, they have particular things that they want. And if they ask you for a Granny Smith apple, please do not carry a Gala apple because they don't want it. <laughs> so, are you are you trepidatious? Are you nervous about going back to work? I'm being honest with you. I'm not anymore because they put like a glass now between myself and the resident. And even though you still have to be announcing everyday resident, please, before you come, and we have signs all over, before you come in the lobby, please put your face mask on. You would still find residents who come downstairs. So I have face masks at my desk. As soon as I see them, I'll hand them a face mask and tell them, make sure you put on that before anything. But um, it, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. But there's some residents who comply because I'm being honest with you, they're residents. And that's one of the things that struck me when this whole COVID outbreak, because we still have our staff riding on the bus, riding on the trains, in the uniform, coming, and I, I was kind of shocked that nobody 
ever discuss that. And they would come into work and they would have the same shoe on. They would go into the resident room because a lot of the residents who, uh, and even the nursing homes who died, these are people who were inside for months, never go outside. How they get COVID? Because our staff who were not properly trained or educated about the whole COVID issue, going into this one room who have COVID, coming out from that room, going into the other room. And I think that is the way COVID was spread amongst many people in nursing home and assisted living. Because I know one resident, um, and I cried a lot when she died because this woman do not leave her room for nothing. And this is before the COVID. This was before COVID. She don't leave her room unless she have to go to the doctor. You don't see that lady. And she ended up dying from COVID. And you, you question yourself, how all these residents are getting COVID? And they don't leave the room. They don't go outside. They don't have family coming into their room. They don't go anywhere. And I, in a whole, I think a lot of these people who died uh, was at a, as a result of staff members spreading the COVID around in a lot of these facilities. I have like a, two, two more questions for you. Um, how is traveling in all of this? Well, I'm being honest with you. I don't know if I'm crazy. Or I'm in my right mind. But I actually went on deployment with the Red Cross because I'm also a Red Cross member. So when they have all the wildfires, I actually went to Oregon and deployment for three weeks. And that was a challenge because normally you go on deployment, you at a shelter and, um, you know, you have help for everything because we have people for the kitchen. We have people for the dining room. We have people for the dormitory. We have everything. But this time, a couple of days, I was at a non-congregant shelter where everybody was there but then somebody like the second day somebody was tested positive for COVID so we had to close the shelter and then we moved to um I was sent to a hotel where you had to drive like an hour every morning to get to that hotel we I in that facility I think I had about 35 Red Cross um, we call them survivors we don't call them um victims anymore in that facility and you have to practically go every morning to make sure that they're there, make sure they have what they need because they were not allowed to come to eat. And then you have to order food, the food come, you have to make sure you distribute the food to them. And it was, it was just myself on what other person because of all this wildfire. Red Cross itself is stretched thin. It's really stretched in because there are points where sometimes most people, some people was working virtually and it was crazy because then you have to be doing the, the temperature taking, you have to be doing the COVID screening, you have to be doing everything. Whereas in the regular shelters, you know, it's just like you have everybody there to assist you. But in this situation, when we move to non-congregant shelters, we have to be doing everything, just myself and one other um, person and I remember the night when we had to um, close that shelter down. I was sent to this hotel where I was receiving the resident coming in and registered them for that hotel. And at one point, I had to actually lift, help lift two elderly people from their wheelchair onto the bed. And I th it was so emotional because you thinking that you're leaving these people in this hotel tonight. They have nobody to call to say, 
I need to use the bathroom because the, whoever they have with them is not there and they're in this strange place. I remember one lady crying to me after I finished with her the night and help her get dressed and put her in her bed. And, you know, I put water. So if she need water, I put the phone on the bed. I say, if you need anything, just press and call the front desk. She started crying. She said, what can I do, Kalita, to keep you? What can I do to keep you? So I, I, I'm being honest with you. The whole COVID thing take a toll and then going on the deployment. But I guess because of my training throughout the years with Red Cross, it, um, I learned to manage the situation, but it was hard. And, um, but in terms of traveling, going to Oregon, the airline themselves were, you know, we were social distancing. Nobody wasn't sitting too close together and everything. But I'm surprised that when I was coming to St. Vincent, the flight from Miami, from New York to Miami was full to capacity. There was no empty seat. So you had to be sitting everybody together. And when we get to Miami, I was shocked because it's like they're saying so much COVID cases about, but there were no, absolutely no social distancing in these airports. Everybody just, you know, climb together, do what they're doing, board the plane. Not even when you board in, there was any social distancing. Just um, some people had masks on and they keep announcing that everybody must have the mask on. And then on the flight, you know, they say, make sure you keep your mask on all the time. But there were still people who sit in and take the mask down and didn't have it on. But then when I get to St. Vincent, I was surprised because you have to have a health screening before you come. You have to have a negative COVID test. And then when we come in, everybody has to be screened for COVID. So you, we come off the plane, there's a long line, they ask us to social distance, and then we go downstairs, they have the healthcare people um, doing the healthcare screening, and then you go into the room, you do your test, and you have to stay at a government-mandated hotel for five days. And wow. every day, the nurse come in and she do your temperature. They have this website that you have to actually, they send you an email, and you have to do your wellness, checking it, putting, you know, how you feeling, what's going on with you for that day. And then on the, the fourth day, the nurse came back and she did this, they did the swabbing, make, make sure. And then the next day tell you the next day they would let the hotel know whether or not you can be released. And then on the night, the fifth day, you can go to your family house, but they keep checking you. You're not allowed to go out beyond, you know, the yard, uh, beyond just your immediate um, vicinity. And they have people checking. And if they see you in any public area, David, they charge you $2,000 and you have to sign that waiver when you come in. And if you break that and you cannot pay, they take you to take your passport away. Wow. So you cannot travel unless you pay that money because you did not abide by the rules. I mean, it's a little harsh, but I think the system is good because St. Vincent had like only 10 cases of Corona and wow. they let you know they, they are open. When somebody is tested positive on the flight, they, let, they tell you at the airport, if there's anybody tested positive on the flight, we would let you know. And then your quarantine time in the hotel would have to be longer once you are, you know, depends on where you are sitting from the, the person who was tested positive. But in Miami and everything like that, and even in JFK, they're not practicing social distancing in the in the airport. I mean, it's difficult for them to practice social distancing, I think. But um, 
they should have some system where they, they test you. They did not even do a, a temperature taking, nothing at the airport, nothing. But then when you get to St. Vincent, you have to wait in line to be, your temperature has to be taken. Everything has to be done before they give you permission to enter into the country. I mean, leave the airport. I, wow. I, thank you again for sharing all this. It's been amazing. I, I think we have to wrap up in a minute, but I, I want to ask one more question. Um, I, I think this whole experience of the last 10 months or whatever it's been has been frustrating, I think, for a lot of people because of the way the um, the whole situation has been politicized. And, and you know, I talk to people like you who have real firsthand experience of people dying on a massive scale and, and real difficulty and trouble and then you know you turn on the tv or whatever and you hear people saying well it's a hoax it's a joke it's a it's nothing i'm not gonna be a wimp and put on a mask you know i mean how does that make you feel when you hear people denying what you saw with your own eyes you know i'm being honest with you sometime when i see that on tv i cry i cry because i'm saying they don't know and that's what even I come to St. Vincent, I'm telling people like, um, you know, people who talk to me and say, oh, the government just trying to make money. I said to them, I said, listen to me, you did not see Corona for who it is or who, who it, well, it is because it's still going on. So please don't think it's a hoax and don't think the government is trying to make money. This thing is real. I remember... It's like one lady, we used to sit together and eat lunch every day at my job. And she was one of the first person to die. But I was home when she died and they didn't say anything to me because they know the relationship both of us had. So they didn't say anything. And for you to go back to work and facing that all these people who would be sitting there and as I go in in the morning, because I have a way when I go in in the morning, I'm very loud and you know that. I'll be shouting, good morning, my people. And you're going in now and there's nobody there to answer you back. It's it's kind of, listen to me, David. People need to take Corona serious and they need to, they have to know that it's not a hoax and it's not a joke. This thing is like a, a snake just lying there with no concern. And as soon as it victim, the victims pass around, it just lash out at them. And this, to me, that's how I see Corona. My husband and I are blessed that we, we didn't lose our job. So we were able to help family because I remember one of my neighbor called me and she said, I put my son to sleep last night without anything to eat because she lost her job. Her daughter lost her job. They have no income. And she said, last night, you know, I put, my son to sleep without any food. And I cried. I said, you, I said, I don't believe that we are friends and you telling me that I'm here and you put in my, because I call him my son, my son to sleep without any food. So I start every week I would support them right now. I'm here, but I let my husband give my daughter money to take to a couple people for Christmas. And some of them, I gave them money before I come in just for them to get a meal. So people really don't know the hit that Corona do, because a lot of people, David, like it or not, are still in New York going to bed hungry because some of them are undocumented. So there's no way for them to get help. 
they can get food stamp. They can get what everybody is getting. Some of them are afraid, like I know a couple of friends I have, afraid to go even there any assistant because they're undocumented. So it's like you have, even you get in 50 cents, you have to make sure that your 50 cents pay your rent, take care of your responsibility and make sure all your friends are, are who have children. So my husband and I, we reached to the situation where we say, it's okay if we don't save any money now. It's okay. Yeah. Once we know that every, all the families that we know, children are, are having a meal to go to sleep. We reach to the point where Thanksgiving, we cook. Uh, normally, people come over to the house. We cook and we send out food. They come, they pick up the food and everything like that. Because, David, I'm, I'm being honest with you. We People don't know the effect that Corona actually have on some family. They don't know. I mean, because I see. to be in New York. And, yeah. and now with winter coming. You know. To be in New York and hearing that children going to school, going to sleep without anything, awaking in the morning and just have a cup of um, tea with, I mean, boiled water with sugar in it and going. Because even they say you can come to the school and pick up the food, they still have to get metro care. One lady had to go to the doctor. I had to actually go to her house to drop money for her to get the metro card to go to see her doctor. She was so sick. At one point, there was some one family I actually had to, she was so sick, David. I had to send an Uber to take her to the, 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 the doctor. Because these are people who they cannot afford it. Some of them are undocumented, as I mentioned before, and they're afraid to like go to the authorities and then these people, even though they're saying, oh, you can get free meal here or you, but how can I, how, how do I get the free meal? I have no means of transportation. So even you are saying to me, the schools provide free meals for these children. How can I get it? Parents who are working and who still has to go into work for seven o'clock. How can I get the meal to my, pick the meal up and get it to my children? How can, because I don't know. It, it's it's just crazy. I it's just crazy. It's crazy. It's just crazy. And I'm sorry if I'm if I'm getting no, emotional. I, no, please. <laughs> I mean, I've it's I've like, never seen. I there's a food pantry a few blocks from my house, and you know it's been there for a long time. I never really paid attention to it, and now every time I walk past, there's a line around the block of people lined up to pick up food there. I've never seen that before. I've never. You know? I I would driving to work one morning and there was this pouring rain and there's a food pantry that is on Rockaway and Linden. And David, people were stretched back all the way over to 96th Street waiting to get into the food pantry. And it was pouring rain and people were standing there. And I cry because I'm like, these are people who are working people. A lot of them are babysitters who are going to work every day. A lot of them are supporting their families outside the U.S. So it's not only affecting the U.S. because a lot of families, uh, they don't know how they're spending Christmas because their families are in um, America who send everything for them, who send this for them, who send money for them. But they themselves are going through the struggle, so they can't afford to support their family here. So that's why we have to be grateful and thankful to God for what he has been doing for, for many of us and pray, you know, that we get Corona under control so that people do the right thing. 
to make sure that this demon just settle or just just die for what 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 it takes because it, it's it's just crazy and um i love what you said about it's okay to not save anything right now as i think yeah i mean i think about that a lot that i think a lot of people just sort of had plans upended and 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 um thought they were stable and now they're not and and they're start you know they're worrying like what's it going to be five years from now if i don't you know it's okay for now let's just get through this and take care of who we need to take care of yeah, and what we need to take care of i think that's beautiful actually yeah that's what we are saying it's okay it's just okay because i in my family i hold everybody very dear and i sometimes like um i would say i prefer to know at the end of my journey every child get a meal than to know at the end of the day i'm saying that i have a hundred dollars or two thousand dollars in my bank account it doesn't serve any purpose to me knowing that people are suffering and people are hungry and i'm there boasting how much money i still have in my account and what i have i i don't care my account is dry but i i I feel better knowing that I'm doing what I'm doing to help people. This has been The Big Shut-In. My name is David Hoffman, and I produced the show along with Tanya Muhammad. It was edited by Garrett Tiedemann. The show is a production of Race Car Radio, racecarradio.com. You can find new episodes there, as well as anywhere you get podcasts. Please subscribe. You can also interact with us on social media. Go to facebook.com slash thebigshutin. If you have a story that you think would be a good fit for the show, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us an email, thebigshutin at racecarradio.com.